Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we dig into the crates to talk about the revival of vinyl. Last year, for the first time since 1987, albums outsold compact discs. So what is behind the comeback? Is it just the old collectors clinging to the past, or is there a new generation of album lovers out there? Former Governor General David Johnston will be tasked with advising the Trudeau government on those allegations of China interfering in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. The government says it will abide by his recommendations, including if he calls for a public inquiry. Is he the right choice? It's being tethered as the largest ever First Nations-owned infrastructure project in this country. The $3 billion Cedar LNG floating liquefied natural gas plant will be built by the Heisla First Nation and Pembina Pipelines in Kitimat, D.C. after the project got provincial and federal approval this week. Could it blaze a trail for other major Indigenous-led natural resource projects? But first, she is a familiar name to many because of her career, but broadcaster Jody Vance has been fighting a very private battle following years of aggressive and persistent online abuse. Well, last week, a Chilliwack, B.C. man pleaded guilty to one count of criminal harassment. Jody shares her story about the impact of that online torment on her life and work, how the perpetrator was identified and brought to justice, and why she believes the punishment does not fit the crime. Jody Vance is a name you may recognize, and her experience um, symbolizes a lot of what is so horrifically wrong uh, with what's going on out there. Uh, the Vancouver-based broadcaster, again, you may recognize the name. She's a fixture here on CKNW as well, the Chorus, Chorus's Vancouver station. She has spent decades in the public eye from being the first woman to anchor her own primetime sports show in this country. Uh, now a regular on Chorus's CKNW, she co-hosts her own TV show with Linda Steele. But over the past several years, the very public figure has fought a very private battle. One that began back in 2015 with someone who emailed her because he disliked her views on certain topics. It would then escalate and escalate and escalate and endure, turning into a steady stream of abuse, sexualized, violent, demeaning, and misogynistic messages almost daily. Now, those messages were also cc'd to colleagues, bosses, guests, and of many others. He would stalk online forums where her name was mentioned. It effect, affected every aspect of her life, her sense of security outside the home, her sense of security at home, her work, her young son, who was also mentioned in some of the emails, one of which she describes included a photo of a starving prisoner in Nazi Germany with the message that she and her young son belonged in, quote, a concentration camp to be punished. You get the idea of the tone of those emails and just how steady and relentless it was for years and years and years. Now, with some help, Vance was finally able to identify the name behind the abuse and report him to police back in 2019. And last Friday, many, do the math, last Friday, seven, more than seven years later, Vance was finally in a provincial court in Vancouver and able to watch this person, whose name we can now name Richard Oliver, agree to plead guilty to criminal harassment and be sentenced to 12 months probation. 12 months probation. That was the sentence. It was, of course, a victory of sorts for Vance after all those years, all that harassment. It comes, of course, uh, this sentence comes, of course, with conditions about who he can contact and so forth. But it was also a recognition that it had, in fact, taken years and a lot of determination 
and a lot of suffering to reach that point, and that the punishment handed out seemed pretty light indeed. Well, joining me now is Jody Vance. Uh, Jody, thank you so much for your time tonight. Glad to be with you. The details of this story, which I was not fully aware of until you uh, started writing about it around the court date, are absolutely astounding, I think, and not astounding, somehow not shocking enough. How did this all begin? Right around the time that Donald Trump came down an escalator. Wow. I, well, but you and I know this, as our listeners likely aware. We often get people who disagree with us, who fill our email inboxes with their opinions and we must find the dialogue and find the middle ground or, or agree to disagree. That's what we used to do. Sometimes you get people that really want you to change your perspective into theirs. It gets a little bit more intense, perhaps. And then there's harassment. And then there's criminal harassment. So this individual, who I had not named until Friday on the day that I was going into the courtroom where he would enter a guilty plea for criminal harassment. I had not said Richard Oliver out loud, and he has been emailing me since 2015. He emailed me in horrifying fashion in 2020. Once the pandemic hit, he copied me in on death threats to Dr. Bonnie Henry. He emailed everybody, all of my colleagues at Chorus, the news director, the executives, the viewer line, the listener line, my colleagues, all of them, the guests I would have on the show. He copied in Professor Peter Hotez at Texas Children's Hospital, Jason Kindrichuk from the research chair at the University of Manitoba, Keith Baldry. He copied in Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality. And luckily for me, he did copy in Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality because ultimately it was Jesse who identified who he was. And I can get into that if you like. But yeah, you didn't know who say, this was. Yeah. I did not know who it was, but he used his real name, Richard Oliver. He used his real name. And I asked him by way of reply email to stop emailing me enough now because he started to swear at me and, and all caps and, and, you know, tell me my reckoning was coming and, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, listen, I want you to stop. And he did it again. And then I emailed him again. And I said, I would, I'm asking you nicely now to stop cease and desist. And he did not. So I said to him back in 2020, if he didn't stop, I was going to report him to the authorities. And he used Three words that motivate me, my friend, Ben. Good luck with that. Wow. So I put my mind to the fact that one day I was going to hold this person to account. He was in every chat room that my name was mentioned in online. He would use similar words around me, fake news, all caps. I'm a Bolshevik. I belong in a prison camp. I'm a communist. All of these things. Uh, I've never met him until Jesse Miller. Well, what happened was is the police actually, I called because he was, he was sending me messages then about my, my son, because he would make up new email addresses every time. And I, I, I don't, I mean, we're a late enough night audience here that I could probably say some of them, but they're horrifyingly sexualized. Let's just leave it there. Right. Uh, those were set in court on Friday, which was just a thing. He came, he came to the point where he mentioned my son and uh, just a little boy. And I was just like, no. So I reported it to the management team and they didn't know who he was. And there are not a lot of tools in place to identify these people. And, and I called the non-emergency VPD line, uh, not a lot of help there. And then Jesse Miller texted me and said, because he's a social media educator, he texted me and said, got a second for a call. 
And I said, yes. And so he phoned me immediately and he said, grab a pen. And he gave me address, phone number, what he does for a living, how many children he has, his, you know, his wife's name. And then went to Facebook and found uh, a photograph of him and sent it to me. So I was able to then send that to the police and that very much helped them and sparked them. They warned him to stop. They, the police then warned him to stop and he didn't stop. He continued to use my image to send harassing emails to anybody that I had on the show and my colleagues. Linda Steele at one point stepped up on my behalf to the management and said, are you seeing what's happening with Jody? And I didn't know that until long after the fact that Linda had had done that. And then I'd find out that numerous others did. Keith Baldry being one of them, our uh, global legislative bureau chief in, in BC. He, and Keith is one of the one of the uh, complainants in my case. Ultimately, mm-hmm. Richard Oliver was charged with five counts of criminal harassment. There's so much to this, Ben. There is. And, and just know. the impact on your family, the impact on your career, the idea that you can't, when you're being when you're facing this barrage of hate, what it does yeah. to you, what it does to you, because it's easy. You're right. We all get stuff that's not pleasant. Most right. of it's pretty civil, uh, yeah. but that's not that's not the same. This that's hate. That that's an attack. That's that's it's, being attacked. It's terrorism. It is. And I opened up because you know I have my public email address through CKNW, the station in BC for Chorus, and I I opened up my trash bin that I had never visited. And what was happening is every time I blocked a new email address from this man, from Richard Oliver, they would go into my trash. Well, the police said, well, how many emails do you have? And I said, well, I mostly I deleted most of them from 2015. You know, I I just thought he would go away. But then I opened up my trash and it was unbelievable. Like I had a moment where I was like, "Okay, I now need to change my car change my license plate, change the locks, go to my son's school and put his photo up in the school, get on the 911 immediate call list. It was astounding. I was worried for my personal safety and the safety of my family for years at the hands of this man. Jody, you go to court on Friday. Finally, Richard Oliver is going to face justice. He pleads guilty. And then the sentence, right? What were you hoping for? What did you get? I was warned that the, that the, because the Crown brings the charges in British Columbia. It's not the same in every province. The detectives in the domestic uh, violence and criminal harassment unit at VPD were unbelievable. I have victim services. I'm getting the therapy I need to help me through this that makes it okay to talk about this. And and I want one more thing I want to say before I get into what happened on Friday. I acknowledge that I am a white woman of means. I am at a position and in a place in my career that I can speak up about this in a, in a way where many others can't. And I am watching my sisters who are BIPOC, who are dealing with even worse. I don't even think, I don't know you can get worse, but what I'm seeing happen to, to some of my colleagues and some of my younger colleagues who are just coming up, you know, this difficult path of, of fighting for a spot in, in this business. I, I, I hope I collectively can help some way move this meter forward because what the sentence ended up being was ridiculous. It was a slap in my face and a slap on his wrist. But I did know in advance, in advance that he was going to be pleading guilty to then earn a joint agreement that the Crown Prosecutor, who is not my lawyer, but the Crown Prosecutor and the high powered, very expensive defense attorney and Lawrence Myers, who uh, was representing Mr. Oliver. So there, it was supposed to be a very short proceeding. They tried 
three times to get me to just let it all go away, which of course I didn't. I want him to have a prior. If he ever does this again, he will have a prior. And that's important to me to save someone else from going through this. But the judge came in and was ready to just, okay, I'm hearing this. And usually a joint agreement, you you process it, boom, stamp, done. Mm -hmm. Um, And they warned me that the defense attorney might say things I disagreed with. I had submitted my victim impact statement for vetting because you have to give it to the crown. The judge sees it and the defense sees it and they approve it. And then you can present your victim impact statement. So I delivered my impact statement and the the judge really shifted in his chair a couple of times. Judge LaPrairie is his name, a former crown prosecutor. There was supposed to be no real formalities, but then Oliver got up and gave his statement, which he had a, a few pages of small type double-sided prepared. And his lawyer was like transmitting to him that the client will be keeping it brief, something like right. that. I'm paraphrasing. But he went up and he he quoted the Bible, Romans. It is very clear that he has learned nothing from this whole experience. Uh, and then the judge took a 30-minute recess. And I had a little hope because the judge has the right to add to the sentence, as we saw with Amanda Todd's abuser, um, where he added a year. So I had some hope there. But the judge came back after a 30-minute recess reading some of the emails. And on the table was only from March of 2020 to October of 2020. So it was just this tiny window of the years. He pleaded guilty to that one charge, right? One charge of criminal harassment. One charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I I accepted that. Uh, I felt like I had at least moved the ball over the goal line a little bit. And now as I look back at it, I'm horrified that I was belittled to that teeny tiny sliver of that's my, that's what I get out of all of these years of fighting forward. Um, so I'm going to continue to fight. And this is me talking to you. Yeah. And, and you wanted to, you wanted this as a symbolic victory as well. I mean, I realized that the sentence wasn't what you wanted, but you wanted to see this happen to send a message. Well, we have to capture the attention of our leaders, I think, and the system is not built for online harassment. It just isn't. And it needs to modernize. And and on the day I was sitting in that courtroom, I left the court and I came home feeling stunned, feeling equal parts frustrated and relieved. And I turned on the television and I there's our governor general, Mary Simon, making a statement about online harassment. And I was, you know, astounded by the fact that like, a world's colliding here. Oh my gosh. She's talking about starting a conversation. I'm asking for swift and meaningful consequences and deterrence that happen immediately. And there is a way, there are ways to do that. And I just think we need to start immediately helping the people who are suffering the way I have for the last seven years. Just to process it all, Jody, those seven years, seven years yeah. of, 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 of being subjected to that. And, and you're right. Many people wouldn't have been in a position, wouldn't have had the wherewithal and the courage to fight through it, because I'm sure there are many times through it all where you thought, you know what, I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah, I, I, I struggle with courage, courageous because I, I don't feel courageous. Yeah. I feel like I'm very fortunate. I've got incredible support. I need swift and meaningful consequences for this man and anyone who feels it's okay to harass anyone. I wish there was an immediate $1,000 fine when you do it, 10000 when you do it a second time, 100000 when you do it a third, and on and on. You can't get your driver's license unless you pay these fines. I don't want this individual, I don't want Richard Oliver to be harassed. I want him to get counseling. I want him to be counseled, not canceled. I want there to be 
a way for us. Everybody says the genie won't go back in the bottle. I'm going to go down swinging on this one. I'm going to try. Jody Vance, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. We were speaking with longtime broadcaster Jody Vance in the last half hour, a name you may recognize, uh, of course. But this was not about her very public career. It was about a very private battle that she fought for many years with an online abuser, a stalker, really, that flooded her with emails, torrents of abuse, daily almost, leading her to have to change the way she lived, the security around her home. He even would mention her son in these as well. So you can imagine the sort of impact uh, that had on her. These were misogynistic, violent messages often. Well, last Friday, uh, justice of, of a sort, Richard Oliver of Chilliwack, BC, pleaded guilty to one count, one count of criminal harassment and was handed a 12-month suspended sentence. Vance was in court that day, gave a victim impact statement. This is how she reacted to the outcome. I don't know what you can get worse, but what I'm seeing happen to, to some of my colleagues and some of my younger colleagues who are just coming up, you know, this difficult path of, of fighting for a spot in, in this business. I, I, I hope I collectively can help some way move this meter forward because what the sentence ended up being was ridiculous. It was a slap in my face and a slap on his wrist. Jody, of course, uh, not only talking about the sentence that was handed down, but also the many other people out there. And we've seen this. The governor general, ta- the governor general had to talk about this on International Women's Day. They shared on social media some of the abusive emails she's received. And she's the governor general. Imagine um, what a problem this is right across the country. The, the, the impunity with which People are abused online by people they don't know for reasons they, who knows, right, often. Um, of course, you know, certain groups are targeted much more than others. Jody was talking about it there. Uh, younger women in journalism, targeted. Um, women in positions of prominence and power, targeted. But with just the most vile sorts of, of abuse. And part of the issue is there are very little, very few consequences, if any, consequences to it. Um, as the Governor General Mary Simon pointed out, uh, we are seeing more and more stories of women around the world that have indicated that their public service is coming at the cost of their mental health, which also affects their physical health. And we are also seeing women speak up, which is part of the solution here, of course. But part of the problem is, what can the justice system do differently? to handle this modern form of abuse. Um, Clearly, the way the abuse is delivered, the way it is targeted, the frequency of it is modern. And the laws that govern it aren't quite there yet. Sandy Garasino is a former Crown prosecutor, writer and columnist with the National Observer. And she she also knows the Jody Vance case very well. And she joins me now. Sandy, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on, Ben. This case, I mean, you know it. You know it. And... uh, you know, the details of it, I, I, you know, I think people knew that it was happening, didn't realize how bad it was until Jody shared the details. How typical a case is it? Well, I think it's actually quite rare that um, sufficient circumstances and a sufficient pattern um, is placed before that law enforcement has an opportunity to um, able to identify the perpetrators, that it can be taken seriously enough that the police will do something about it. There have been lots of cases um, of of women reporting um, incidents like this, but it's hard for them to get police to take uh, their concerns seriously. In Jody's case, she had 
an associate who was uh, trained in um, in IT who was able to basically lift the veil and and clearly identify the perpetrator. And with that evidence and the pattern so clearly established over such a long period of time, uh, this all started in 2015. So it was it was about seven years that it went on and involved a pattern of thousands of, of emails and communications. That pattern was strong enough and the identification was clear enough by the IT expert that Jody was able to um, to get assistance from, that it, it enabled the police to really take it to take it seriously and to lay those charges. And I think that's what's one of the things that is so disappointing here, uh, in in my view, to see Crown with such a rare case um, um, not take this really strongly and take the opportunity for the uh, justice system to make it very clear that perpetrators uh, who are caught and identified in this way will be treated harshly. Yeah, 12 months probation. Uh, maybe talk us through a bit about how that happened. Because again, I, if someone had asked me point blank, what is a sentence that one would get for that kind of behavior? I don't think I would know to be honest. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have known what a proper sentence. So when I saw 12 months probation, I thought, okay, well, I guess that's a fair sentence for that kind of crime. But then when you think about it, you think that really is a slap on the wrist. Well, it is. And let me add something else too, Ben, because I only looked into this today more, more closely when I could see the transcript uh, of, the, of the sentencing hearing. It's a conditional discharge, which means that under the Criminal Records Act, um, three years after the conclusion of Mr. Oliver's probation, um, he is clear of this conviction and there will be no criminal record. So it's, it, I mean, this is almost as light as it could possibly be. And not only was it, was it probation, but the terms of probation were very light. Um, there was no fine. There was no restitution. Um, uh, Jody Vance did not seek financial restitution for the costs that she had incurred, thousands of dollars in security costs and in lost income. Um, but there, so there were no penalties of that kind. He could have had hundreds of hours of community service. Uh, he could have had, if not a custodial sentence, because that might might have been severe, um, although possibly not. There were four other individuals that were also, that he had also been charged with criminal harassment of. Those charges were all dropped in order to get a single conviction and basically almost nothing. And really, uh, Ben, the only effect of this is, is that he has to take a time out for 12 months. After the 12 months is concluded and he's finished his probation period, there's no uh, enduring court order that prevents him from starting up again. You know, when I think about this, I always try to think of what it would be like if one of the, someone in these situations were to stand at a grocery store in front of said person, say Jody, and scream this at them. What would happen to them? Because that's essentially what's going on here. I know it's different. The means of communication are different. Uh, but the idea that someone could do that every day to you, day after day after day, um, where has the – how is it that the legal system – and I and I, I can understand why – but how is it the legal system hasn't been able to catch up to this? And do they take it seriously? 
Well, I think the biggest thing is that we don't take it seriously and we continue to um, fail and fail and fail because it is invisible. When somebody's screaming at another person in a, in, in a, in a mall or in a grocery store or whatever, it gets captured on, course, on, on, on the phone and broadcast everywhere and everybody sees it and then suddenly this person is out of their job. They're, they're, they're fired and it's all and it's, it's, it's terrible humiliation and all that sort of thing. Um, but most of this harassment happens, well, it's obviously it's anonymous, and we don't see it. I mean, I go back to, I started to pay attention to this most seriously in the Amanda Todd case. You remember the 12, right. the girl who, uh, as a teenager at age 15, took her own life after three years of having been um, uh, blackmailed by a middle-aged man. When I found out about this case, it, it, that was the first time the light went on because um, having been involved in the criminal justice system, I knew instantly that this man, not only not only if he was doing it, there were thousands of other uh, perpetrators and predators who were doing, doing it, and, and that Amanda Todd would not be his only victim. There would be many others. And I thought, in fact, I believe there were possibly dozens of others um, who were being victimized. Uh, and so this extends to what's called the sextortion field, but I, I think of it as just online abuse, extortion, harassment. We also have cybercrime. We have, I'm sure, countless of your listeners, probably almost every one of your listeners has had scam phone calls attempted, attempts to uh, um, uh, steal their personal information all kinds of this online crime. There's a huge range of it. And I frankly don't believe that our law enforcement community is properly and adequately equipped to deal with cyber crime of this nature. It is so pervasive and so common that if people did complain when it happens, I, I think our law enforcement would be swamped. But they also don't have the technical expertise. The witness who provided the information, the identifying information to Jody Vance and provided that information to police had experience in training law enforcement. And he knew that he had to be able to do this for them because typically law enforcement would not be able to, would not have been able to, um, or would have, would not have had the resources to address this. Uh, so I think there's just so much that uh, we really do need to get a grip on uh, in, in terms of protecting the public, because it isn't just protecting the public and preventing this kind of thing or punishing offenders. It's just think of the people who are now. Um, among your listeners right now who are afraid of people in their lives and they don't even know who those people might be. Um, I, do, I personally have a little bit of experience in, in the field of criminal harassment and it can be terrifying for family members. And it's just something that because it's invisible and when it's happening, people don't want to talk about it. Right. Jody Vance right. did not go public for a long time until no. the charges were laid. Where could we tighten things up? I mean, how would you set about, this seems like such an enormous problem right now, the abuse specifically of women online. Um, where would you start to try to tighten up the rules around this that in a way that might actually have some consequences? So people may think twice about doing stuff like this. 
Well, it's, it's very easy to say, oh, the justice system is failing and we need new laws. And frankly, that may be true. I haven't come at this with, with a view to how much change there needs to be legislatively. But I would look to, in particular, some kind of training for the Crown prosec- prosecution system. Because in this case, the Crown took a plea deal. They had, uh, there were five charges of criminal harassment that were, um, that were approved. And in order to get a single conviction on one count, the, the Crown dropped charges and then accepted this plea deal. When I look at this, having done this work, it speaks to me of um, a prosecutor who perhaps is overworked. I, it's, hard to, it's hard to really tell uh, why this plea deal was taken. Uh, but this, the Crown, in my view, should have pushed very hard for substantial penalty in this case. And I don't, and I don't uh, dismiss the idea of, of some, kind of in, some kind of custody or perhaps these were, all, these were tools that were available to the Crown. This is not a system that is totally helpless to deal with this kind of situation. These tools were available, and the Crown in this case in my view, just kind of, kind of shrugged and went for um, and went for an easy an easy win. I, I it was hard for me to say why, but this is not a plea deal that should plea that should have been accepted. Um, there should have been far harsher consequences, and so I would look to see training inside Crown Prosecution Services and policies by the provincial attorneys general that when these cases come forward, that they are treated as really serious. Um, because remember, one more thing, that this, this was uh, an attempt to silence journalism. This was a, someone who wanted to silence a reporter. And among his threats was a death threat against the B.C. Uh, public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Um, so th- this, is, this is to silence women who are professionals from doing their jobs. Uh, so I, I think that the, the Crown Prosecution Service has to take this really seriously, and we have to, um, uh, we have to be training police and recruiting police with cyber and IT expertise. Instead of just taking, you know, folks off the young people who are just looking for any career, um, we should be looking for IT specialists and training that. Is is trying to see is using the, the the legal system to try to crack down on this maybe the not necessarily the wrong way? It could be certainly be tougher, but it seems to me the solution probably also lies within. Now this was different. This is email, so. Uh, but there, there, there are other ways too, especially online, to look to the big tech companies to try to crack down on this a bit more, right? I mean, clearly, you know, you don't want to shoot the messenger here, but at the same time, this is where the messenger is being. This is how the message is being delivered, uh, and there must be a way for big tech companies to crack down on this a bit, at least. Ben, you are. This is such music to my ears. When I, I started to get involved in this, when Amanda Todd um, uh, died. Uh, when when she was basically blackmailed to death as a teenager on Facebook, which mm-hmm. at the time said, well, we, you know, it was a, it was at that time, it still wasn't yet the behemoth that it was going to be. It was only a $65 billion company, and they defended themselves by saying that, well, we could never afford to be able to moderate and monitor our site. And my, meanwhile, they've become stagger, staggeringly profitable businesses. And 
it's just beyond me. But anybody who's got experience and knowledge in this field knows that the U.S. congressional, that the U.S. legislation, because these companies are um, basically head office headquarters are in the United States, they are governed by U.S. legislation, and U.S. legislation grants them immunity for, for, from lawsuits and damages relating to content posted by third parties on their sites. And we really do need to have legislative um, reform in this area. But, you know, if you try and do this, look what's happening. You know, here we've got Google that is that is threatening to um, right. th- threatening about about news reporting. They, they are going to push back and fight hard against any legislation that that uh, ascribes any responsibility or penalties to them. But I would personally love to see that because most of this is happening on social media. Sandy Garasino, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much, Ben. You may have seen this yesterday, a big announcement uh, here in British Columbia being touted as largest ever First Nations owned infrastructure project in this country. Cedar LNG is called, it's what it's called. It's a $3 billion floating liquefied natural gas plant that the Heisla First Nation and Pembina Pipelines plan to build in Kitimat, BC. It got the green light first from the BC government yesterday and the federal government this morning. Uh, Apparently, it'll be the first LNG plant to be built and owned by a Canadian First Nation. Here is Heisla Chief Crystal Smith yesterday. Today is about changing the course of history for my nation and Indigenous peoples everywhere. A history where Indigenous people were left on the sidelines. We can responsibly advance LNG development in our, in our province while protecting the environment. We can take charge of our future and be partners with industry. Well, joining me now is Heather exner Pirot. She's senior fellow with the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. She also has a lot of experience in Indigenous and Northern economic development. Heather, thank you. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, I immediately thought of you when I read this statement yesterday, because uh, read, read the news release yesterday, because we talked about this uh, over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was your reaction? I mean, this has been going, this has been in the book planning stages for a long time, uh, but it got the green light yesterday. And uh, I was wondering what your, what your reaction was. Well, my first reaction was relief. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we were expecting the decision in December, just based on the trialings and the act itself. It was a little bit overdue. There was some concern that maybe there was, um, you know, some some cold feet in the BC government. Uh, but this was, you know, the Heisel had been working at this for a decade. Um, a lot of the energy industry was kind of holding its breath to see how this would be. Our allies were holding their breath to see if Canada was going to start delivering LNG. And so I was, you know, relieved and, and you know, a very positive decision, I think, from B.C., uh, very good for the Heisla uh, Nation as well. This is not a huge project, but it seems to have pretty huge significance, as you pointed out. Where do you think that significance lies? There's a lot of significance with this project. Number one is obviously the fact that it's an Indigenous majority-owned project, the Heisla, and that they're actually the proponent they're the ones that had to submit the environmental assessment. So it's not just an equity partner. And we've seen some of those big equity deals, which are also very important, also a big step. But in this case, the Heisler were actually the proponent. We're leading this project. And so showing the, you know, the, the depth and the sophistication that has been growing in Canada in Indigenous nations, and the Heisler had been at the forefront of that, uh, it's great to see that. They had a great partnership with Pembina, um, developing that equity deal, getting, you know, the, uh, the gas, uh, you know, they have a deal with ARC, um, getting some, you know, they're set aside in the coastal gas link. So, so many things, big, big deal for Heisla. 
This is also, however, the first decision under the Impact Assessment Act. And your listeners might remember that as Bill C-69, the No More Pipelines Bill. That was passed in 2019. This is the first major project approved under its auspices. Uh, and so, you know, lots of, lots of milestones were hit yesterday. Tell me a bit about the project itself, because uh, as I said it's not huge, but it's significant. And considering how few LNG projects are in the works, uh, this is number three. And, and that in of itself is a big deal. Yeah, so LNG Canada, the one, you know, with Shell and, and uh, some Asian partners, is much bigger, where that's a $40 billion project, and that's mostly what Coastal GasLink will be will be serving. Uh, and that will have, you know, significance globally in the LNG market when it comes online. And so this one is is much smaller, $3 billion, you know, $3 billion. But I think that's also the model that these giant mega projects are hard to finance, hard to get over uh, the finish line. And so we're seeing some smaller ones come up that may be a bit more nimble, a bit quicker uh, to get approvals, but easier to get financed. Uh, but it's still a $3 billion project. It's still not nothing. Uh, and it'll obviously contribute, first of all, to LNG supply globally. Uh, you know, it'll be heading to Asia, but it'll, it'll help ease pressure globally. And then also, you know, put Canada a little bit back on the map to say, you know, yes, we are approving projects. Yes, we are getting things done. Yes, we are going to be exporting this resource. What have you made of the reaction to it? Because I was interested, of course, anytime there's a pipeline approved, you always start to scour social media and the different groups that, uh, that come out for and against these things. And I noticed yesterday that uh, those who normally oppose pipeline projects were, were pretty muted about this one. And this, is, and this is the secret recipe for me, why I'm so excited of getting resource projects done in Canada, uh, that we all, I think, most of us have an appreciation of the legacy on Indigenous land with Indigenous peoples that, by and large, they were... Um, you know, either ignored or, or definitely, you know, lost out, had, had negative impacts on resource projects in the past. But now we're seeing a path forward where, you know, the Indigenous groups I work with say that they're not opposed to development, they're opposed to being left out. And here are the Heisla kind of taking the bulls by the horn, being the proponent, uh, being a majority shareholder. So, so it is, there is many less voters in Canada, I think, who will be against this kind of resource project when there's clear Indigenous consent and benefits. And so I think for, you know, for all resource industries, but in particular for, for oil and gas, they're seeing that this is the way forward, this is the way that we can actually get projects done in Canada. Yeah, and the benefits to the Heisel here must be fairly significant. I mean, this is a big project on their land. It's a big project on their land. They're not that big of a nation. Uh, so the create it's already, you know, they've already been working on LNG Canada. That's in their territory also. Right. Uh, they've also had benefits from CGL. So this is a nation that is getting, you know, towards full employment. Uh, but this kind of deal with the equity will not only create that long-term employment, and, you know, there's decades worth of, of uh, you know, exports here, but will also create those own source revenues. So this is their step towards, you know, self-determination, that they will be less dependent on the federal government, have their own source revenues, be able to pay for their own cultural programs, language programs, environmental programs, support their elders, all those things. Uh, you know, and First Nations should be wealthy in this country with the land base that they have. And here, the Heisla, they will be wealthy. Uh, any more steps? I mean, I know, I know it has, you know, shovels aren't in the ground yet. Are there, are there more hurdles to cross here before this is, this is actually uh, realizable that they actually start building it? As I understand, there will be some construction permits, but it's clear that the political decision has been made in the positive, both from the federal government and the B.C. government. Um, there's still the investment decision to be made. Uh, I think in the, you know, the third quarters when, when they said the final investment decision would be made. So, uh, but it all looks very positive. I mean, the, the work has been going towards this. I think people are excited. 
Um, shareholders and Pemben are excited. So, you know, I, you know, there is a chance it'll fall off the map or, you know, some black swan event will happen, but I think uh, it's well on its way. Yeah, and, and and you've talked about this a lot over over time. I was reading something that you wrote back in September of last year about support for resource projects within First Nations communities, within Indigenous communities uh, broadly. Uh, th- how do you see this? The impact of this beyond simply you know that that neck of BC, that neck of BC. Well, again, so for all of all of. It's funny because I was in New York last week because they're Good. investors, and I say, you know, there's sharks circling the water. Everyone can see that we're going to need more critical minerals, more energy, more everything. Canada has a lot of it. All of our allies have been coming to us in the past year, you know, trying to get our resources. Uh, and, and these investors in New York are trying to figure out how to spend money in Canada and make it stick and not turn into, for example, a $31 billion pipeline uh, or a project that just never moves ahead. And so here is the recipe for success that people are starting to see is that partnership with an Indigenous partner of a project on their territory that they benefit from, that they consent to. Um, this, this, you know, this will, again, reinforce that trend and make that Indigenous partnership even more strategic going forward. Yeah, and, and certainly uh, when you talk about critical minerals and so on, I mean, this extends far beyond, uh, you know, one of the great benefits, of course, of Kitimat is that you, you can ship out of it, right? But this extends far beyond that to all kinds of different resource projects that could happen uh, over, the next, over the next little while. Absolutely. And even just, you know, just this and speaking of BC, it's also, you know, the pipeline, uh, the community is benefiting from the pipeline. And then, you know, we had the Blueberry decision just a couple months ago, uh, right. that's, where the, that's where the natural gas is going to be produced, is from the Treaty 8 area, uh, Blueberry Halfway River. Those, those, so those also stand to benefit, that there will be you know, demand for their resources, that they're now in a better position to, to benefit from. So a lot of knock-on effects um, you know, should also bolster our, you know, our hydrogen um, you know, industry that's kind of burgeoning. So uh, a, a very positive. I have to say on the environmental side, in case you don't ask it, you know, because that is yeah. the Twitter, some of the feedback is, is the negativity. But absolutely, and this was the BC environmental assessment, the regulator said itself, this will have marginal impacts on BC emissions, but it will lower global emissions by displacing coal in Asia. And, you know, 2022 is the, the world, the, we never use more coal, and we've never had more emissions. And so it's very important that we have affordable natural gas that is an option for the 4.5 million Asians uh, to get off of coal. Heather, you were talking a bit about the environmentalist reaction to it, and I noticed that it had been more muted than I'd seen it for other sort of projects. Um, what was your take on it? Yeah, so again, I think um, a large portion of the left tends to favor Indigenous rights, respect Indigenous rights, and want to protect the environment. And so this divides up the camp a little bit, um, where I think a lot on the left also you know, want to see Indigenous communities uh, prosper and trust Indigenous nations to do what's in the best interest of their territory, of their environment, because it's so important to their culture. So, and and yet that being said, so I, th- I think that's why I could have support from the BC NDP, for example, and it does, uh, and it did, and also from you know you mentioned the Environment Minister Kenneth Kibo is the one that had to approve it on the federal side. So people not known for you know their love of big oil are supporting this project uh, because it is First Nations led and because it does for LNG have a very small carbon footprint. So it is almost, you know, world leading, uh, you know, they will say, people will say that you might bicker over that it's the first or second or third best in the world, but certainly a very low emitting, um, uh, LNG by global standards, partly because it's going to be the liquefaction is, is, you know, led by BC hydro. So it's electric, 
uh, renewable energy that's doing the energy intensive liquefaction. And partly also because the Montney, you know, uh, reserve that it comes from has a, you know, particularly low CO2 um, composition. I'm not an engineer or chemist. I don't know what that means. But yeah, me, not, me neither. <laughs> me neither. I did read yesterday that, you know, again, it's a floating LNG terminal, so it's a small land footprint. And BC's Environment Minister George Heyman was saying that uh, the project will be among the lowest emitting and most environmentally conscious LNG facilities in the world. Uh, you wrote something really interesting back in uh, September, I think it was, about uh, majority of Indigenous peoples support resource development. And that was something that was based on some polling that had been done. Uh, but, but you're right, there is this, uh, this this idea uh, that um, that that somehow there's this. We, I think it's it's a common misconception, at least according to your article, that often people are like, okay, well, you know, protecting the land means zero resource development, right? Uh, and you mm-hmm. sort of pointed out that not only is that not true, it actually boxes uh, for some First Nations or Indigenous peoples in to to situations where they can't take advantage of of what's around them. And here's an example of where they can. Yeah, so the so the poll, we actually did polling. We did two polls. So for those that say, oh, it was you know, a bad poll or something, we did two in a row, uh, verified the results. 65% of Indigenous people support resource development, and majority supported oil and gas and mining. And in BC, this was a surprising finding, um, BC had the highest Indigenous support for oil and gas uh, out of wow. any province. Uh, so I think it was around 58%, and, and maybe, uh, you know, I had you know, something like 25% opposed, and the other was where it depends. So, um, so, so I think that's because the work has been done. Um, Indigenous people in BC in particular, uh, because they have exerted, you know, their, their rights so strongly are involved. Um, you know, the Blueberry case, the CGL, uh, the LNG, mm-hmm. Wood Fiber with the Squamish is another great example. Uh, with this cedar LNG, the Heisel were very involved. They've had other LNG proposals that don't, did not meet their standards, that did not feel right. This one, uh, you know, they were willing to, you know, change the area in the cove where they were. Um, so the cedar had a lot of influence on what the impact would be, where it would be, uh, and, and, you know, felt that it was a good fit and fit with their values and fit with their culture. And so who was to tell them, you know, that, that no, the impact is not tolerable or if it's tolerable to them? Yeah. In fact, we had a listener text in and say, what do the heritage chief, you know, the hereditary chiefs, I think is what they meant, say, because clearly in Wet'suwet'en, that's been part of the issue. You were mentioning CGL, Coastal Gas Link. Um, walk us through a bit of that, because I think there's a lot of, I think there is a misconception about how that, how that works. Yeah. So, so every, so BC is, is particularly diverse ethnically of, of different First Nations with different language, uh, language groups and cultures. And but a lot there aren't a lot of hereditary chiefs maybe you know in the prairies it's not as as prominent with the Cree or the Blackfoot but it certainly is in BC in the Wet'suwet'en obviously we are very all familiar with the hereditary chiefs there but talking I've talked to Chief Smith and interviewed her um, and in this case there was very strong support from the community they had a referendum on F on LNG Canada very strong support strong majority where they had you know polling stations in five or six communities made a big effort to inform everyone, had the information packets, and had such strong support for that project that they didn't even feel like they needed a referendum from, for Cedar LNG because um, the community is very u- unified around this particular uh, project. And so they've really done the work. It's not the same situation as the Witsuwin, as, as, you know, very different and, and very positive for them. Well, Heather, thank you so much for your time. As always, I imagine we might be seeing more of these announcements, maybe not exactly like this one, but we might be seeing more of these in the future. I expect that's the future, yes. Heather Exner-Piro, thank you so much. Thank you.
Well, the federal liberals and the prime minister have been under a fair amount of fire recently about allegations of China's interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. So we have a couple of issues at hand here on this one. One is the integrity of our elections, right? That's always paramount. Uh, I think most Canadians agree, and it's certainly been said by a number of people from all parties, that there's no suggestion that the outcome of the 2019 or 2021 elections were impacted in a way that would have changed uh, who eventually won those elections or came to power. That being said, there are accusations out there that um, perhaps the Liberal government knew about this, knew what was going on more than they were letting on, chose not to do anything about it because ultimately they felt like it was going to benefit them. That's one of the, that's one of the accusations that's, that's out there. So there are two streams going on here. One is the politics. And one is the integrity of your elections. Um, And clearly, the third is, what is China up to? What can you do about it? So they all sort of came together today uh, in many different ways. And you can see it. So much of what the reaction to this says so much about where we're at with this topic right now. So uh, a little more than a week ago, uh, or a little over a week ago, the Prime Minister promised they would do something about these allegations. He finally sort of said, oh, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. And then finally, the heat was turned up high enough that he said, you know what? We're going to name a special rapporteur. So in other words, an advisor, an eminence that's going to guide them on what they should do next. And they said it would be an eminent person. So today we found out it's David Johnston. Now, many people suspected perhaps the former governor general uh, appointed by Stephen Harper, kept on by Justin Trudeau, would be a good choice because ultimately he's seen as being uh, in the middle, uh, not too partisan, not partisan at all, perhaps. And so he's going to look into the allegations of Ford meddling in the last two federal elections and recommend what the liberal government should do about it. Now, here's the prime minister. What what exactly is he going to do? Here's what the prime minister had to say last month, or last week rather, about what the rapporteur's uh, mandate would be. We will ask the independent special rapporteur as one of the first tasks of their mandate to provide the government with a recommendation as to what the appropriate next step should be, whether it be an inquiry, an investigation, or a judicial review, and what the scope of that work may be. Now, here's where this boils down to. Uh, Trudeau says they will make Johnson's recommendations public. They're also going to abide by them. So what he decides will go. So that's good, right? This all comes after weeks of global news and global mail uh, newspaper reports about these alleged Chinese uh, Chinese interference in the 2019 and 2020, 2021 federal elections. It wasn't quite enough um, to appease the opposition, certainly not the conservatives. Here's an idea of where they're coming at on this one. Here's Pierre Polyev a little while back talking about this very issue. Justin Trudeau knew about this interference and he covered it up because he benefited from it. He is perfectly happy to let a foreign authoritarian government interfere in our elections as long as they're helping him. It's quite the accusation, right? It's quite the accusation that that your rival political party would allow democracy to be subverted for their own ends. But that's what the rapporteur is supposed to look into. Will they? 
Uh, apparently, uh, David Johnson will have a wide mandate to look into interference and threats and so on. That's still being finalized and will be made public soon enough. We don't know the full scope of what exactly he's going to be doing. Uh, again, the Prime Minister has been asked repeatedly about what he knew and when over the past few weeks. Hasn't answered much of it. Um, so this is sort of, this is supposed to put out the flames for now, right? Uh, Trudeau said Johnson brings integrity and well and wealth of experience, a wealth of experience and skills to the role. He's had many other roles, by the way, uh, other than just Governor General. So will this actually achieve what it's meant to achieve? Joining me now with more on this is Art Artur Wilczynski. He's a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa. He spent more than 30 years in the Canadian public service working on foreign policy, intelligence, security, and defense issues. He's also Canada's former ambassador to Norway. Artur, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So this is, I mean, perhaps not a surprise, but we finally found out who the rapporteur will be. You, I should point out that you you suggested him a while back now for, for good reason, right? Yeah, no, uh, when, uh, when the prime minister came out a few days ago and said that he wanted to appoint a special rapporteur, I think I, I tweeted within minutes that he would be my, uh, my, my nominee. And, and, I, and for a number of reasons, I think he's a remarkable Canadian, truly exceptional. He's nonpartisan. He's smart. He was appointed by, uh, by Prime Minister Harper. Uh, he has a track record on promotion of democracy and trust. And, and I think he's got the, the kind of chops that, uh, that this role requires in order to provide Canadians, all Canadians, with a bit of a, of a roadmap to how do we restore confidence in our democratic institutions. Because this is a, I mean, let's be honest, of all the inquiries out there, and I've covered a few over the years, and, uh, including the Oliphant Inquiry and the Gomery Inquiry and the Air India Inquiry. But this is, this is a tough one. It is a tough one, because I think that the, the past few weeks have, uh, have injected a level of partisanship uh, into this discussion, which I think really needs to be taken uh, out of the equation. It's really important that Canadians understand their electoral system, that they understand how robust the protections are. But we also need somebody with the credibility of Mr. Johnson to look at the, the status quo and make recommendations about how we make it stronger. Because it's clear that the threats are out there. It's clear that, that hostile actors, state actors like China, but others as well, are interested in undermining Canadians' confidence in our democracy. And we need to have the tools uh, in order to mitigate those risks so that our electoral system, our democracy is resilient to those external factors. We don't know his exact mandate yet, but what would you expect? So I, I hope he does three things. The first thing that I hope he does is to recommend a public process, uh, whether or not it's an inquiry or whatever the actual you know, technicalities of that are, I, I will leave to, uh, to him to, uh, to make a recommendation. But the primary objective in terms of that public process really needs to be to restore confidence in our democratic institutions. I think he also needs to outline key questions that he wants that process to answer. Uh, again, so what are the emerging threats that, that are out there to our democratic institutions? What do we need to do to, again, build resilience into our electoral system and into our broader democracy? The third thing that I'd like to see him do is also engage with uh, the National Security Intelligence Review Agency and the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, the two review agencies that have already been established, in order to ensure that there's a level of coherence between what they are doing in terms of looking retrospectively back at what happened in 2019 and 2021, but then also to look forward in terms of making sure that our, our, our systems at all levels are resilient to the threats that they face. 
so listeners uh, know, the rapporteur does have within uh, his writ, we now know who it is, to uh, suggest an inquiry or some form of public process. That's what you're talking about as, as right. number one. You feel that's important. I mean, it was interesting to see there was a poll out this week. I can't remember who did it exactly that spoke about how Canadians are both have faith in the electoral system. A majority do, uh, despite all of this, but they do want a public inquiry. They do want some sort of public process. Uh, you think that's important that that be done? I do, absolutely, because I think that that what has happened over the past number of weeks has raised questions for a number of Canadians. It might not be you know, sort of equal across the board, but there are really pockets of Canadians who feel that the electoral system has been undermined, that it's not fair, that there isn't a free and fair vote. And even if that is a, a comparative minority of Canadians, we need to address that if we're going to have legitimacy in our system moving forward. If we look south of the border, there have been a lot of folks who have invested a lot of time and a lot of money deliberately undermining the democratic institutions of, of the world's largest and longest running de uh, democracy. Uh, and we see how fragile our systems can be. You know, as long as there is a narrative out there in the public domain that questions our democracy, I think that that's profoundly dangerous. And if that uh, those attitudes are you know, focused within a certain demographic, that compounds political polarization in Canada, in my opinion. And that polarization, again, is fundamentally unhealthy to a democratic system. Given your background, uh, how, how surprised have you been? And, and how should we read what we've been seeing over the past several weeks when it comes? Because it wasn't new. I mean, people knew that this had been happening. I mean, it had been out there for a while, but it seemed to, to really mushroom in the past uh, month or so. What did you make of what we've been seeing over the past little bit and the allegations that it, that it makes? So there are a few observations. One, and it's something that my former colleagues from the National Security and Intelligence Community testified before a parliamentary committee, is that foreign interference in Canadian elections is not new, and in the Canadian democratic process is not new. This is something that we've been confronting for a number of years. And it is not just the People's Republic of China uh, that engages in this kind of, uh, of activity, but it's other actors, you know, Russia, Iran. We've heard from, from the diasporas and from ethnocultural communities whose ancestry is from those countries of origin, who have very clearly complained about the level of interference, the harassment, the intimidation that they face. And we have to listen to them. I think that what has happened in particular since the, the revelations from uh, various news sources is that they've, they've become more tantalizing or, or, or you know, except that all of a sudden there is a story that's more easily understood by the broader population. And because of the sort of those, you know, pardon my saying, like those titillating, exciting aspects of it, uh, people have glommed onto it. What's made it, I think, problematic is, uh, is how it's now descended into a level of partisanship. Uh, where it's turned into a bit of gotcha politics. Instead of sort of reflecting on how do we ensure that our system is, is again, secure, is resilient to the threats that we know are out there, it's turned into a question about who knew what when. And while that those questions are important, I'm afraid that given the sensitivity of the information that may be disclosed, Canadians won't get much satisfaction from uh, from a review of those of those disclosures because there's a reason why information needs to be protected, in particular why intelligence 
needs to be protected. Arthur, looking at this, though, it strikes me that where this has succeeded, even though, and, and I agree with you, you know, intelligence is not evidence, but it's layered on to a lot of other things that were out there. And it's kind of been sort of this this pile that's been the building, you know, Sam Cooper's book, different reporting on stuff about the way China infiltrates and then attempts to influence. So there was a sort of a presumption of believability when this stuff was being put out there. And it strikes me that the prime minister could have gotten rid of a lot of this pretty quickly if he'd just said at some point, we were told about this, we looked into it and decided that it didn't reach the level of whatever. But we haven't heard much from him uh, along those lines. What do you think of that? Well, I think that the prime minister is rightly constrained in what uh, what he can say in terms of things that may have been acquired through uh, intelligence means. I think that that confirmation or specific denial around uh, around information that might have made its way inappropriately into the public domain risks a number of things. Uh, one, it, you know, if you can if you confirm it by commenting on the specificity or the veracity of a of a specific report, uh, the effect can be to undermine the techniques and sources used to acquire that information. So what that does is it prevents you from having access to a potential source that you need in order to continue to mitigate and monitor a particular situation. And that that impedes the government's ability to actually manage the foreign interference that's there. And as I mentioned also for the prime minister to confirm that something is true or not true, or that he, he may or may not have known something at a specific time in a public setting, also has the effect of confirming that individuals may or may not be subject to an investigation. And again, that goes against some certain fundamental principles of justice around due process, around presumption of innocence, around the right to, to defend. So I think that that needs to stay in that kind of classified body. And I know that's not what many Canadians want to hear, but there are true consequences for us being able as a country to mitigate those risks if that's done in a public forum. I think that that's why it's important for agencies and organizations that were specifically created in order to handle classified information, in order to review the activities uh, of national security and intelligence organizations like CSIS, like the RCMP, for them to do their work. They can uh, look at this information. They can make recommendations. They can speak in a relatively unclassified kind of context about what they found. It's why, in my opinion, the creation of the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, which includes representatives of all political parties in the House, Bloc Québécois, NDP, uh, Conservatives, Liberals, they're all there to review the information and to make recommendations to government. And if there are elements that continue to be troubling, there are ways for them to then take that and reformulate it in a way that is unclassified, that does not actually betray the techniques, uh, the sources that need to remain uh, remain protected. It's, it's a fine line, though. It's a fine line between hiding behind that and sort of, uh, you know, on the political side, it's a fine line because we, I mean, let's be honest, we know what how that, a lot of that information is gathered. Some have obviously gathered from the, di- the diaspora in this country. Some involve, must involve techniques that are a bit more, more covert. Um, but this becomes a political issue. But when was the prime minister warned about something as opposed to maybe the details of it? I guess that's where there's a so, bit of a disconnect. And I don't disagree that this stuff needs to be protected. It has to be. But there's a yeah. bit of a disconnect between those two things. 
Yeah, there is. And, and that's why I say I, I sort of acknowledge that Canadians will, will, will unfortunately be frustrated uh, by, by some of that. And again, I believe that they, they unfortunately, uh, they need to be limited in terms of what information is, con- is confirmed in the, in, in the public domain. Uh, but I think this is where uh, my former colleagues could have done a better job in terms of proactively engaging the Canadian public in what the threat picture is. This is where transparency on the part of national security and intelligence agencies is absolutely imperative. And they've done, quite frankly, and I put myself in that same uh, same category, a terrible job historically. Over the course of time, organizations like uh, CSIS, like CSE, have built a, a culture of, of, of you know, secrecy uh, that is unfortunately negatively affecting Canadians' knowledge of what they do and how they do it. And other countries do a way better job than Canada does in terms of speaking regularly to their populations about the threats that they face. Yeah, Australia has a website. I mean, <laughs> foreign interference in elections, right? I mean, it's not that complete, but there's it's more. It's more than than we have. So this seems like a this this lands like a bombshell when really it should have been just another chapter in what has been a long. It a should long be story. part of the ongoing conversation that that our agencies have with Canadians, with political officials, so that we have a culture where we understand what intelligence is, we understand what the threats are, and that we have a regular opportunity to review the tools that we have at our disposal to mitigate the risks that those threats uh, pose and that it's it's an informed debate as opposed to a highly partisan one where you know everybody's running around with their hair on fire trying to figure out who knew what when uh, in terms of what happened in 2019 and in 2021 and they're not as focused as they should be in my opinion on what's coming. I'm noticing already people are mentioning the fact that David Johnson sits on the board of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. So your dreams of nonpartisanship, I mean, not that that's not something worth pointing out, but um, it's hard because there's two things at play here, right? There's the politics and then there's the desire to protect the electoral, the integrity of the electoral system. And they're they're not necessarily mutually complementary. I, I completely understand that. And I think that it's deeply disappointing. So I think folks like uh, like Jenny Byrne coming out the bat within like seconds of David Johnson uh, being appointed, criticizing the appointment in terms of, of David Johnson's integrity is precisely the kind of partisanship that Canada can deal without. We see what kind of hype, what, what kind of effect hyperpartisanship has in the United States. It has forced folks into various camps that they can't speak to one another. And the effect has been to do exactly what hostile actors like China and, and Putin's Russia want, which is for our system to be dysfunctional. Instead of rising above that kind of partisan fray, uh, they're engaging in it. And I think that that is achieving the objectives that the People's Republic of China and Putin's Russia want to see. And that is deeply damaging to our democracy. Well, it'll be David Johnson's to figure out now. Artur, thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Let's talk about what a tumultuous time it's been in tech. Remember during the height of the pandemic when tech stocks were through the roof and it looked like the dream was never going to end for tech? The money was cheap money everywhere. Everyone was working from home. It looked like tech was on a roll that could never end. Well, all things, of course, end. And Silicon Valley Bank collapsing this week or last week on Friday uh, certainly spelled yet another uh, sort of dark chapter in what's been a tougher time for tech lately. The chief executive of Waterloo's Tech Hub says he's worried about the collapse of the bank and the chilling effect it will have on the sector. We used to have an expression where, you know, if the U.S. had a cold, Canada got the flu. It kind of looks like the U.S. has the flu right now and we're going to have a really bad cold. Um, I think our companies, by and large, are better managed uh, than their U.S. peers and 
are better run, uh, but it's still going to be a, a tough environment for them. Yeah, a tough environment to uh, raise money, it really is what it boils down to. At the same time, you may have seen this, Facebook announced a huge round of layoffs. Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, said uh, 10,000 employees, or roughly 13% of their workforce, is how many they're going to drop. So joining me with more on all of this is Murad Hamadi. He is a correspondent with The Logic in Ottawa. Murad, thank you. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. So this has been, what a week uh, for the kind of news that you cover, sort of tech and business. It all keys, you know, came together in one big storm. Tell me how this unfolded for you last week, because the first I read about SVP, SVB must have been Wednesday-ish, and it was just like a little Bloomberg factoid. And by Friday, you've put together this huge story on what's happening and what it might mean for everybody else. Yeah, and I think that that in fact has been the speed of it has been one of those things that's really caught people by surprise. If you were talking to a company, a tech executive or a venture capitalist on Friday at 10 a.m. and then talking to them again on Friday at 12 p.m., it was a completely different interview because the, the facts on the ground changed, you know, that quickly. You know, Thursday was sort of the good old fashioned bank run uh, where you had venture capitalists in Silicon Valley urging companies, some of them, not all of them, urging their companies to consider moving money out of their accounts at SVB. You know, a bank run is essentially a form of mass mania. Uh, You follow other people in, and by pulling the money out, there's less money than for the next set of people, uh, and and it cascades that way. In Canada, the exposure is relatively limited simply because there is a there's a Silicon Valley Bank Canada or there was until this morning, but they can't collect deposits. So they could lend you money, but they couldn't take your money and hoard it. And if you were a Canadian domicile company, a company headquartered here, you might use an SVB account in the States if you had to make like US payroll, say. You know, you're paying U.S. employees, so you have an SVB account, you pay them out of that. But your main bank account was probably on this side of the border. And so the odds are some companies definitely did get caught up in this. I don't want to minimize that. But the number is probably much smaller in Canada than it was in actual Silicon Valley. Yeah. And yet we did see that SVB, when they came in, were quite uh, were quite aggressive. I gather that the that the sorts of uh, loans they were giving out here were, were good for the tech sector. At least they were attractive to the tech sector. So that's gone. Right. What, what do you think the impact is going to be more broadly on uh, the Canadian tech sector? Because it's been tough times for them already. And, and that's exactly it. Silicon Valley Bank had been lending to Canadian companies for quite a few years. But in 2019, they get permission to set up here. They start lending up here from a Canadian balance sheet. What a few different people in the industry told me was that that effectively kicked the big banks here into gear a little bit. Many of them had been doing a little bit of what's called venture debt, which is essentially like, think of them as tech-focused loans, loans uh, written for tech businesses. A lot of them had been doing a little bit of that already, but seeing SVB come across the border, you know, CIBC then buys an independent bank called Wellington, massively scales that up. RBC gets into that business. And so in the initial phase, what we heard and we have continued to hear is those big Canadian charter banks, their innovation arms are now reaching out to a lot of companies that were affected by the SVB collapse or they think might have been affected to offer them basically replacement lending. So, you know, you had a line of credit, you can no longer access it, we'll refinance you. That's where we are short term. Long term, it definitely takes a player out of the market. And as you say, it comes at a time when tech financing is already starting to drive a little bit. So, you know, 2020 
2021 in particular was a, a phenomenal year for raising equity capital. So, you know, selling a part of your company to a venture capitalist who would give you capital in exchange for that equity. That started to dry up already towards the back end of last year. It's been quite depressed this year. Uh, and so now essentially there's one less place you can go to get money. But also we we're hearing from some companies that they're concerned that this will essentially put a little bit of a chill on the whole ecosystem until, you know, everyone kind of battens down until they figure out what's going on. Yeah. And, and that I think now today, of course, we saw bank stocks getting getting hammered and Credit Suisse problems with them. I mean, you get the I guess the question, if you're not in this, you know, intimately watching this sector closely is, is this the canary in the coal mine? Because we know a lot of money was poured into tech. There's a lot of debt out there and there's a lot of there's a lot of there was a lot of liquidity swishing around. Now there isn't. And is, you know, is this the sign? Is this the sign that there are some real troubled times on the way? Yeah, I would say there are plenty of bad omens for the broader economy, and this kind of adds to them, right? So the, the canary in the gold mine is a, is a good good place to put this, which is in 2008, there was, a, there was a banking crisis that pushed the whole world into a recession. Here, we've had a recession that's kind of been looming over us for quite a while, right? The central banks are tightening interest rates in order to get inflation under control. One regular effect of that is that there's less money liquidity in the system. Companies can't borrow, and if companies can't borrow, they start to reduce headcount or find other ways to find efficiencies. They stop spending as much, and so on, and so on, and so on. So all of that was already happening in the system. This is a little extra, like, poke in the side of that set of events. It probably gets us a little bit closer. It is not in and of itself the start of the snowball, but it sort of adds a few a bits of snow to the snowball yeah. as it's going past. And it certainly reflects just how jittery everyone is, uh, I think. I mean, social media doesn't help here, but it, it, it looks like everyone was pretty jittery even before the whole SVP thing started to really materialize. Murad Hamadi is with us this half hour. He's a correspondent with The Logic in Ottawa. We're talking about tech and business. Lots going on the last week, of course, with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and all that meant. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank primarily lent to the tech industry. In fact, almost exclusively lent to the tech industry. So some issues in there. And then, of course, around all that, and I think this would have been a bigger story if SVB hadn't been happening, uh, but Meta announces another round of layoffs. Uh, what's going, do you have a, a concept of what, what's, you mentioned it earlier, less money, less liquidity, look, look at cutting headcount. Is that all that's going on here? Uh, there's some of that, but I think it's also useful to think about how these big tech companies constituted themselves in kind of the, the, the days when money was flowing freely, right? So, with with the blip of the early COVID period, it's been an incredible time to be running a public tech company over the last, let's call it, decade. These companies have grown to become the, the largest players on, uh, on stock markets. After an initial period of losing money, they were churning out giant profits. The primary business of a company like Facebook or a company like Google, which was selling advertising on the internet, was slowly taking up more and more of the marketing spend of companies. So these were good times. And these companies invested in all kinds of things that, you know, at Google, they were called other bets. Uh, and that's a term that's that's often been used for this kind of investment. Interesting use of the word bets. <laughs> I know it's technical. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You've got money sloshing around. Why not take a punt on something that might, may in fact not work out, but if it does, what a great opportunity. And it's useful to think of these as like, this is all the sci-fi stuff, right? So Google makes a big bet on self-driving cars. 
Facebook moves increasingly into the metaverse. All the stuff that 10 years ago would have appeared in a sort of genre novel, and we're now starting to see some of in the real world, that's where they could afford to pour in money. And uh, one one little number that's useful to think about, $10 billion. So $10 billion is how much Mark Zuckerberg said that, that, that Meta was going to invest in the metaverse, in building out the metaverse. $10 billion is also the amount of money that Facebook said a change to the way that ad tracking works on Apple devices would cost them in the sort of fiscal year that just ended. Their base function, selling ads to people who are on their site, loses $10 billion. And their big bet on the metaverse of $10 billion, now suddenly is that money well spent? Uh, And so, you know, we are actually, this 10,000 is past the the original. The original cuts were, you know, lots of stuff that you could perhaps argue were not core to Facebook's business. Now we're starting to get into the point where this is a CEO who believes that there are efficiencies to be found. And so these people are, to put it in sort of heartless terms, the efficiencies that they're finding. Yeah, it just, I, I guess there's been a real reckoning with with some of the way that they were investing and building these companies. And, and you're right, the, the word you always hear is to return to sort of the core business. But even Facebook's core business can be a little a little nebulous sometimes if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you get into this, this recession question, right? Which is, if people are cutting back their spending on all kinds of things, consumer discretionary goods, if you're buying less clothes, then Instagram has less Instagram brands to, to sell to. You know, if you're on Instagram, you've probably seen ads for all kinds of stuff as you're flicking through people's stories. Often those are direct to consumer merchants who have made a lot of money advertising on social media, but they sell stuff that most consumers don't think of as like essential, they mu- as must-haves. Uh, their indulgences. Well, indulgences get a little harder to justify in, in a recession or in the face of a recession. So people are buying less. So those companies are late making less money. So Instagram sells less advertising. So Facebook's bottom line is affected. These companies are are cyclical in the same way as the business cycle, or at least this is the first real recession that will test that theory. Because in 2008 and in the ensuing years, you know, Google and Facebook were not nearly as large as they are now. Yeah, does it? One of the things that I've thought about is is just reading how these companies have tried to uh, present themselves to the world as sort of the bigger and better, you know, the, slightly more socially aware than say their predecessors, you know, the the, the steel companies and the car companies of the past. A recession is going to put a lot of that that lip service to to the test, isn't it? Undoubtedly, and and the way that these companies attracted employees in the past was a combination of what you're just talking about the idea of a higher social mission you know in facebook's case connecting everyone in the world in google's case becoming a repository for information that increased the knowledge of the world um those missions but then also let's be honest a lot of valuable stock good salaries and perks how much of that lasts in the face of a recession you know, if you are trying to optimize your ad systems in order to squeeze as much out of as much performance or as many dollars out of marketing as you out of people's marketing budgets as you can, is that the work that people signed up to do? If you suddenly say, well, now we can't actually afford, you know, your stock is worth less now than it was before. Sorry, worthless is two different words. Yes. Not worthless. Still <laughs> yes, worth exactly. quite a lot of money. Yes. Uh, but it's it's less valuable than it was before, and maybe your next incremental raise won't be as high. 
And by the way, we want you all back in the office because the CEO believes that that's the best way to work. So your flexible work arrangements uh, aren't sticking around. It's sort of a drip, drip, drip of losing things that made these places attractive. Well, Mirad, thank you so much. It's been a very busy week, I know, and I'm sure it's going to be just as busy going forward. We have a budget coming up, all kinds of things happening. Thank you so much for taking some time tonight. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, this is what I've been looking forward to for a little while, ever since I read this headline last week and celebrated it. Um, albums, vinyl albums. I've always called albums the vinyl albums. Being uh, you know, born in 1970, that's what I grew up with. My dad was a big record fan, big record collector. I spent a lot of my childhood in secondhand record stores, like a lot, a lot. I could have been babysat at a secondhand record store. Um, but we found out last week that, that albums outsold CDs for the first time since 1987. Now, these numbers are infinitely smaller than they were back in the heyday of the sales of both CDs and cassettes and albums. Very small, but it's significant anyway. And for this last 17 years in a row, vinyl sales have crept back up. Now, of course, back in the day, the record store was as much a mecca as a, as a retail outlet. It's a place where you not only went to buy music, but to discover it, commiserate with others about it, watch others go through the crates to see if they found anything that you wanted and hope that they didn't buy it, uh, and also see what, they buy, see what they bought and liked, right? Now, perhaps the best example of this is the book High Fidelity by British author Nick Hornby, who also wrote about a boy and others, and then the movie made of it with uh, John Cusack and Jack Black, who is the kind of person you probably didn't want to run into at a record store. Here's a reminder. I'm looking for a record for my daughter for her birthday. I just called to say I love you. Do you have it? Yeah. Great. We have it. Great. Can I have it then? No. No, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that tells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. Go to the mall. Yeah, you get the idea, right? It wasn't just about buying and selling records. There was something, there was sort of a whole culture around it. Well, when that movie came out, I mean, it seemed that vinyl was destined for the dustbin. I used to go to places where they sold it by the ton. You could get records cheap back in the late mid, mid to late 90s. Um, and right about the time that movie came out, a little later than that, it was kind of a tribute to another time. CDs were all the rage, and then it was MP3s, and then now you have access to anything you want at your fingertips. But something strange has happened. Vinyl has made a comeback. In fact, as I mentioned, they outsold CDs for the first time since 1987. And this has happened several years in a row. I think this is the 16th, not 17th, 16th consecutive year that uh, there's been a growth in vinyl sales. Uh, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift is responsible for a fair amount of it, but there's something else going on here. Um, and Abby Shack is with Beat Street Records in Vancouver, and he joins me now. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. How are you doing? Good, good. I mean, this is an interesting, I, I suppose this didn't come as a huge surprise to you, probably more because CD sales have fallen off a cliff, uh, but but still kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a, something to celebrate, I'd say. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon of, uh, of people getting back into records again. Yeah, there must have been some lean years there. What was it like in those times where, I mean, actually, I, used, I still went to record stores. I've always gone to record stores over the years. There was sort of a devout group that would still buy, but the supply started to dry up a bit. For sure. Well, we've been open since 1996, um, and I've been buying records since 
the 80s. I think I'm around your age there, I heard you say. I was born in yep. 72. So, yep. you know, I've been buying records my whole life. But uh, there's there was definitely uh, some ups and downs, and we've seen some dips, and now it seems to be steadily rising. So... I was the most fascinating stat that I saw. I don't know if it applies to Canada or not, because this is the same American stats that came out and, and showed that CDs had been albums that outsold CDs. But uh, they surveyed all the all the people who were buying vinyl, and, and, and something like half of them didn't have record players. Like you couldn't play them. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out who's buying this stuff now, and what's how much has the customer profile changed. The customer profile has really changed because really when the people that were holding on and still buying vinyl was largely a male, um, older population that had, you know, they they swore by sound quality, which obviously has an effect. Uh, the sound quality is different. Um, and slowly over time now we're seeing more and more young people, um, lots of uh, all diverse uh, types of people, uh, women, uh, men, kids, everybody seems to be into it right now. So that whole, you know, the, the John Cusack, Jack Black record store of, 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 of yesteryear is, is at least a, a more diverse and welcoming place now than it used to be, because they used to be pretty intimidating, some of those record stores. Absolutely. And I think maybe some still are, depending on who's, uh, <laughs> who's running it. But, you know, it's really an open place for people to come and enjoy the experience of, shopping for records and picking out records they like and, and being with their friends and having a social um, aspect to the whole um, experience. Do you talk to them about what it is about albums that they like? I mean, I think any people like us who grew up with them, there's something tactile about a record, right? Like you can see it, there's album art, there's lyrics. I mean, often you'd pull out the sleeve and the lyrics would be on the sleeve. Um, you know, there was all kinds of things about albums that were really a different level experience as a consumer product. Uh, do they get that too? Is Are they appreciating that? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, it starts with the sound quality because it is a different sound when you're t- talking about uh, analog versus digital. So you do get a warmer sound. And like you said, you can pick it up. You can look at the pictures. You have a direct physical connection to the music. I think a lot of people now are younger people for sure who have grown up just accessing all the music they can on their iPhone in a digital format. It really, it, it, it doesn't have the same connection that you have when you pick up a record, put it on your turntable, put the needle on it. You can see the record turn, hear the music come out. Um, and, and you can own a piece of that artist that you like. Whereas say if you're a Taylor Swift fan and you're listening to the music on the phone, you don't really ever have it. It's just, it's there, it's accessible, but you don't really have it in your possession. So yeah. you can really pick it up and feel like you're connected. So what are these new customers? What are they buying? They're, I mean, back in my day, you know, I'd go with my dad. So we, he'd, he'd go wander into the jazz section and vanish for a few hours and emerge <laughs> with something very obscure and inexpensive, a deal, in other words. But it must be different now. It is, it is, but that's the beauty of the record store. We offer all kinds of music for all kinds of people, and you might, you know, come in there and buy a Taylor Swift record for your first time, and then you see all these other things that you can uh, touch and hold and go through, and you're you're next to the jazz section, or you might wander over to the soundtrack section, or you might wander and see a movie that you've remembered, or some uh, older record that your parents played, or it's... It, it it exposes you to a whole um, 
wide variety. Plus, you know, the people that you're with, they're suggesting stuff. Uh, the staff at the store are suggesting stuff. There's music playing over the loudspeakers that you might not have heard before. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a wide, it's really a wide variety. Yeah, and we do sell a lot of Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I think, I think Taylor Swift sold 945. I was reading a stat. I think Taylor Swift was responsible for something like 25% of all those album sales last year. So she almost single-handedly pushed vinyl ahead of CDs, which is, uh, well, good for her. Good for her. Um, good for her. But you another... do see people buying a wide variety, too. You know, someone will pick up a Taylor Swift record at the same time as picking up uh, an ACDC record or a Led Zeppelin right. record and something like that. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know yeah. as well. It's also interesting in these inflationary times that when you know people don't have a ton of disposable income, and let's be honest, music is essentially free now. If you want to, you know, listen to it or stream it, it's interesting now that uh, that people are willing to pay for something they could otherwise have for free. That certainly wasn't the way when we were young. If you didn't buy it, you didn't get it. Like you had to sort of sit by the radio wait for it to come back on, right? It's true, and records aren't exactly cheap these days. They're definitely gone up in price. But the advantage is, is once you buy it, you have it, and it's yours forever. So you're not paying a weekly subscription for something that you don't really own. If you add up all your Spotify or Apple or Tidal or whatever streaming service you're using, maybe multiple, you're paying monthly, um, yearly, and at the end of it all, you really don't own anything. Yeah. So you must be, I mean, you must feel like vinyl's now found a foothold again, and it will be here to stay in some way, shape, or form for the, for a while to come at least. It seems like it has. It's, you know, it's hard to tell. We've definitely seen ups and downs. It's definitely been steadily up and growing, and a lot of young people into it. Seems like to me that it's here to stay. Yeah. And you have Record Store Day coming up next month, right? That's right. Yeah. Always a big, yeah. fun day to... Lots of exclusive releases and and lineups in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'll have to drop by next time I'm in Vancouver. I, I love a good record store. I don't spend nearly enough time in them anymore, so I'll come and have a look. Thanks so much. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you.